You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. everyone, and welcome to episode 43 of Archaeology Now, a free monthly public archaeology talk brought to you by Archaeology in the City, the community outreach program from the University of Sheffield's Department of Archaeology. This time, our guest speaker is Matthew Roberts, speaking about a people's history of Sheffield from the French Revolution to Chartism. Due to the ongoing COVID pandemic, this talk is taking place online via Google Meets, so maybe some background noise or audio feedback in our recording. Enjoy! I wasn't quite too sure what people wanted to hear, really, in, in me addressing the group. I think, and I'll try and do a bit of both, but I thought I'd tell you something a little bit about the history of Sheffield in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. Um, so there's certainly a, a local story to it. But um, I guess the other thing that I wanted to do and that is at the centre of, of the research that, that I've been doing for uh, ooh, at least the past couple of decades, really is thinking about how we might write political history differently and how we might write that from the perspective of ordinary people. Now, that in itself is is nothing new. It's part of history from below. You heard a, a definition of that there. Um, that's a long recognised way of doing history. It became prominent in the 1960s and 70s under the influence of Marxism, adult education, first generation of university students from grammar schools, etc. Um, and Sheffield and the history of Sheffield, I think, has, has been part of that tradition of writing history from below. But in the last 20 years or so, I think the historiography and what's been written about things like popular movement, social movement, working class protest and politics, those sorts of things, it's taken, I think, quite an interesting turn. And very slowly, I have to say it's very slow, I think historians are starting to learn things from groups like archaeologists. Been a big emphasis on material and visual culture in the last two decades. Um, that's something that I, I've worked on uh, quite closely. And also, I think, trying to get more at the experiential dimension, as uh, existential as that sounds. I think more straightforwardly, what, what I've been trying to do in my research and others who are also working in this area is be able to get at what it felt like, what it looked like, what it sounded like, what it smelt like almost, although I haven't seen an olfactory history of politics just yet. But the most recent research I've been doing, you heard about in the introduction there on the history of emotion, has very much been about thinking about the role that feeling plays in politics. And it's one of those things that, that once someone says, oh, yeah, feelings are important in politics, you, you kind of think, well, that, that's rather obvious. But funnily enough, it, it's only really been in the last um, five, ten years that historians have started to take the, the history of emotions quite seriously. And I think there's always a danger of over-rationalising our approach to the past, you know, in thinking stuff was always about reason, it was always about political ideas, it was always about organisation. Um, I think often it, it, it's about things that are much more prosaic than that, but no less significant, like feeling, anger, disillusionment. So there's certainly going to be some of that today. So, so that's sort of what's bubbling along 
in the background to my talk about how we might write the history of popular politics slightly differently. So a bit of local context. I I said in my opening remarks there that Sheffield, I think, has been at the centre of a long tradition of an assertive and proud group working people created a rich occupational, social and political culture. And that really begins at the time of the French Revolution in the 1790s through to the 1840s and beyond. But I'm, I'm just sort of going to do that, that first big chapter today and finishing with the Big Bang of, of 1848. From the time of the French Revolution in the 1790s through to the 1840s and beyond, working people increasingly fought for recognition, dignity, protection in the workplace and their rights as citizens. Things like the vote, greater protection for labour, repeal of the Corn Laws, things that put uh, taxation on the people's bread, and also by challenging the exclusion of working people from public spaces. And I think that's the first thing I, I would want to say that might be of interest to a group of archaeologists, that a lot of what working class protest is about in this period is challenging the exclusions that, that working people face as far as the streets um, buildings of a town like Sheffield present. So one of the ways elites try to clamp down on working class movements is by preventing them from gaining access to public buildings. So groups like Chartists and Jacobins at the time of the French Revolution, as British variants of radicals are called, they're always trying to get access to civic buildings to hold their meetings, places like the Cutlass Hall. Um, but these the, the doors are always closed to them. So they tend to meet at more outdoor locations like Paradise Square, now full of lawyers, sadly. But even in places like that, it's not unusual for the authorities to send in the military to disperse peaceful meetings. So you can see a lot of what's going on here is a long-running contest. Working people try to challenge those exclusions in the built environment of a place like Sheffield. And for movements that are more better resourced, and that's always going to be a problem for, for working class movements, they do actually manage to pull their pennies and, and build purpose-built places where they can meet. Um, but that's very much the exception rather than the norm for obvious reasons, money being premium. So often they are forced to to hold meetings on more outdoor kind of locations and far from the civil uh, boundaries. So beyond the urban environment, places like Sky Edge, which I think is behind where Park Hill Flats currently are, um, further afield on places like Attercliffe Common, and certainly throughout Yorkshire, often in sort of rural locations that are the midway point between places like Bradford, Leeds, Sheffield, and so on. So it's kind of difficult, I guess, to be a working class protester because of these restrictions that exist. So I thought before I got into talking to saying a little bit more about these protest movements, I'd just say a little bit of something about what Sheffield society was like and what working class culture was like during this period that I'm talking about. So I'll begin with a bit of background about Sheffield. And I think the point I'm about to make is is aptly captured, I think, on, on this image here from, I think, the late 18th century. And Sheffield was not a product of the so-called industrial revolution in the way that, uh, say, places like Bradford or Manchester were. At the beginning of our period, the late 18th century, Sheffield was already a sizable town. In 1776, it had a population of some 30,000. 
that doubled by 1801, and then you do start to see a bit of an explosion, more characteristic of places that are beginning to boom, 112,000 by 31, 161,000 by 1851. But the point here is that Sheffield was a much older and longer established centre of small-scale manufacturer, principally metalworking, cutlery, of course, we always talk about cutlery, but not just cutlery, also edge tools um, and silver plate. Again, unlike Bradford and Manchester, this is a crucial point, there was no widespread mechanisation and transition to large-scale factory production in Sheffield until way beyond the period I'm talking about today. It's not really until the late 19th century um, that you start to see the rise of heavy industrial Sheffield, Atlas, Brightside, Attercliffe, those sorts of places. So in other words, there was no uh, dark satanic mills to speak of in Sheffield during the first half of the 19th century. And I think that has important consequences for the nature of working class life and crucially the relationship between the different classes which uh, made up Sheffield and, and our return to that later. So the typical um, scale of manufacture was small, taking place in workshops nestled in and around courtyard at the rear of back-to-back housing. As maps and recent archaeological excavations have confirmed, there was a close proximity between industry and domestic life in Sheffield, a pattern that only really began to decline, as I say, in any significant way uh, in the late 19th century. So your typical working environment, really, is what you can see depicted here from a wonderful set of illustrations published in 1814 by George Walker called The Costumes of Yorkshire. And one of the illustrations is of a cutler's workshop. And the map that I showed you there was of an area in between West Street and Kellam Island. Now, it's important to note that not everybody in Sheffield worked in the metal trade, even though that's what the town was famous for. Time of the 1851 census, some 23,000 men and 1,000 women were working in steel, iron, founding and engineering. Um, so there's a, some, some, a total of something like 30,000 people working in the metal trades. But out of a total population of 135,000, that still leaves a significant number of people engaged in other occupations, such as retailing, service enterprises. Um, and there were many other artisans as well. The town has over 1,000 uh, shoemakers, for example, nearly 4,000 domestic servants, female domestic servants at this time. Uh, and one of my favourite uh, things I found off the, the census was the town had a one, no less than 1,700 milliners, most of whom were women uh, making uh, hats. It means that nearly half the men and five-sixths of the women in employment made their living from occupations other than metalworking. So the basic point here is we shouldn't assume that every adult working class male was a cutler or metal worker. Having said that, small metalwork constituted the single largest category of male employment. Around a third worked in this highly specialised and subdivided sector. More importantly, the majority of workers in the city and its hinterland were artisans, that is, skilled labourers, many of them highly skilled indeed. And we shouldn't uh, exclude here Sheffield's hinterland, and I'm talking there about the 10 or 12 miles around the city, which of course becomes the site for scatterings of cutlery, um, forges and related artisan metal working because of the close proximity of coal, ironstone mining, quarrying, iron furnacing and foundries. Um, along with significantly capitalised agriculture as well. 
So this was a geography that was determined largely by the availability of running water. No less than three significant rivers, of course, in the town, the Sheaf, the Don and the Riverlin, provided motive power for grinding and other processes. The hinterland was also the location of rich coal and iron seams for turning into steel, though the cutlery industry actually was heavily dependent on the import of high-grade Swedish iron bar. I think the other crucial point to note here, it was not just that the metal workers, sorry, the metal workers were fiercely independent and a proud group. So that brings me really to the question of what did it mean to be an artisan at this time, and in particular, a skilled metalwork. Traditionally, this entailed being an artisan, that is, serving an apprenticeship with an approved master in a trade that was highly regulated, often by royal statutes like worship companies, um, such as the Company of Cutlers in Hallamshire, um, a trade guild, in fact, that was incorporated in 1624. These companies did things like set terms of apprenticeships, they monitored admissions to their membership, they issued regulations pertaining to quality, workmanship, agreed price lists, and even working conditions. Now, artisans tended to be peace rate workers, i.e. they were not paid wages, they were paid for the items that they made, an agreed price that was paid upon completion of their work. Now, over the course of the 18th century, as with other such companies, the Cutler's Company had become increasingly oligarchic and ineffective at preventing sorry, protecting the status of the artisans from the rise of capitalism and market forces as larger merchant manufacturer capitalists began to exert a dominance um, that squeezed the small masters, famously known, of course, as little mesters and their artisan workers. Despite a rearguard action by the artisans in the 1780s and 90s through their trade societies, basically early forms of trade unions, to make the company more democratic and accountable, the metal working trade was increasingly proletarianized, rising instances of employing unapprenticed labor, um, i.e. workers who had not served an apprenticeship uh, because they were cheaper and could therefore undercut skilled workers. We've seen things like growing numbers of apprentices, remaining journeymen, i.e. not becoming masters, um, as would have been ordinarily the case in in a long life devoted to this. Um, There's also a growing dependence on tools and equipment provided by the employer. Um, In a Marxist sense, workers are increasingly no longer owning the means of production. And we're also seeing, of course, the rise of uh, industrial capitalists with greater concentrations of wealth and power in the hands of larger employers who were able to dictate terms. Now, what all this adds up to is, well, an interesting sort of social scene in Sheffield. On the one hand, there is certainly evidence of growing social tension by the early 19th century, certainly from the perspectives of smaller masters and and artisans, to say nothing of, of less privileged groups of workers. Um, but on the other hand, one of the one of the sort of things about Sheffield is that it, it's quite complicated. Um, there are lots of people who will tell you that Sheffield was not a place of class conflict. Um, you can see one here, John Parker, future MP of Sheffield, saying in 830, there is not the marked line of difference between the rich man and the poor man, which is becoming annually more observable in other places. The middle ranks are nearer both to the upper and lower. Um, And I think relatively, there there probably is some truth in that. Sheffield, similar to Birmingham, are places that have got more of a variegated social structure. There is less of an obvious divide between them and us, the rich and the poor. Um, The problem, of course, with statements like that is that it's all relative. And and it's not a surprise, I think, that that's coming from someone who um, is pretty high up the social scale in in Sheffield terms. And we don't have to look very far. Um, Joseph Maver here, 
um, a famous songster from Sheffield writing the late 18th, early 19th century, who is seen as the voice of the working man. Um, you can see here from um, an extract from one of his songs that I put on the board that uh, he's certainly not signing up to this notion that Sheffield's all rosy and cosy and he's likening the condition of the working man in Sheffield to um, slaves, to the enslaved in uh, America. Which I think is really interesting. It shows that there is um, an awareness of things beyond Sheffield amongst workers, that they're likening their conditions to enslaved labour overseas. Um, and they're, they're the f not the first and certainly not the last of a group of white workers to make quite a, it's often seen as a clumsy comparison to say the least between the position of being a worker and, and that of um, someone enslaved in the colonies or the former colonies in this case as well. Um, so visions of Sheffield are um, complex, um, but certainly I think from the perspectives of cutlers and metal workers, they're looking back on, um, they're increasingly looking back, I think, with a sense of disillusionment of a lost golden age of the fact that things were once better, but no longer uh, are as good. And you can see that with evidence such as this, which is presented to Parliament, um, Parliament forever having select committees, royal commissions, investigating the state of manufacture. Sheffield Cutlers are being interviewed here on a select committee on the state of manufacture's commerce and shipping in 1833. Um, and the story that they tell essentially is that, that things are going from bad to worse. What would you reckon the average wages of labour in the hardware trade at Sheffield from two and six to five shillings a day? They're working 12 hours a day, okay, two hours for mealtime. 11 to 12 hours i think the pace of the the pace of work is also beginning to increase even in the absence of of, of large manufacture large factory based type production destructive of health intemperance is the greatest enemy i.e people having too much to drink um of course the metal workers many of them the cutlers are also famous for playing hard as well as working hard and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But I think a lot of the the things, the privileges that they'd once been able to count on, they're all being systematically stripped away and taken away and un undermined. Um, so that really is the context, I think, for radical politics. And, and it doesn't take sort of, you know, it's not a difficult thing to understand why a group of increasingly disillusioned workers would start to turn towards politics as, as a potential route for bettering their lives. But it does take some explaining. And the event that sort of kicks all of this off, really, is the French Revolution. What I've summarised here are sort of key dates in the history of protest and radical politics, as it's called at the time. People who are pursuing, essentially, a political solution to their grievances. It kicks off with the French Revolution, um, for obvious reasons, a seemingly autocratic, immovable regime has been brought to its knees on the continent, the French monarchy. Um, it's been replaced. It, it sort of opens the floodgates. There's big questions about who should politics be for? How should we rearrange politics? How should we make societies work fairer? Um, and groups in Sheffield and indeed elsewhere in the UK start to respond very favourably to the French Revolution, hence the, the name given to them by the authorities and the upper classes as Jacobins after the French radicals who, who are powering the French Revolution. So real key date in Sheffield is the formation of the Sheffield Society for Constitutional Information, which sounds one of the dullest societies you could imagine. But um, I think that the, the name is carefully selected because beneath that, um, they're doing pretty um, radical stuff. They're reading things that 
um, the government wants banned, that it wants off the streets, in, in particular Thomas Paine's rights of man, uh, the idea that everybody has rights, every man at least. Um, Sheffield becomes a centre then for debating these radical ideas. Um, and it really sort of is born then and and it continues to, to, to be a prominent kind of movement, radicalism that is, until the mid-19th century. Um, and then it sort of dies down a bit before it sort of powers off, off once again in the late 19th century. So I'm not going to talk about all of these things here. But what you start to see, of course, is sort of a division amongst the radicals about how best to pursue their goals what those goals might be, democracy, okay, for some, possibly even a republic, um, they start to divide about how best to pursue those goals. Um, should we pursue peaceful means, which is probably the majority, and then there's also a smaller minority, an influential minority, actually, who are willing to use more direct action methods, um, take up arms, um, and you can see that in the revolutionary underground. Once the state starts to clamp down on radical politics in the 1790s in Britain, it drives it underground and in the process it radicalises it um, and it rears its head, um, sometimes in food riots, which are still happening in Sheffield in the early 19th century, usually where a group of women will go to a bakery and they'll basically say we're only paying so much money for this bread they'll pay for the bread and then they'll leave it which of course technically is a form of theft because you're not paying the asking price but this is a traditional way actually that, that plebeians have used to to try and make the system fairer but there is that, that sort of direct action that sort of often called pre-industrial type protest um, is declining uh, and there's a shift towards uh, more sort of democratic movements of, of, of pursuing democratic means by constitutional objectives, peaceful means. And this is what you start to see here as the uh, 19th century progresses. And it all culminates really in, in the movement that I'm going to spend the remainder of my time talking about this evening, and that's Chartism, um, which is the mass movement for um, democratic rights in the 1830s and 40s, which sweeps across Britain. Um, at its height, it's it's got something like 3.3 million members. Um, it, it's the world's first largest working class movement in history, not just in Britain, in the world. And of course, places like Sheffield are an epicentre of, of chartism, um, and it mobilises millions of workers. It draws on things like the notion of class, family and community, um, all of which with the aim to create a more democratic society. Um, and you see that sort of division once again that, that I hinted at earlier. There's a divide amongst the Chartists about how best are they going to pursue their objectives? Is it going to be through peaceful protest? Is it going to be through um, holding meetings in Paradise Square? Or um, is it going to involve taking up arms against the state? Uh, and some of you will know where, uh, or you may do, you'll know where I'm going with this um, when I mention the name Samuel Holbury, who I'm going to talk about at the, uh, in a moment. So at the basis of Chartism is a document called the People's Charter, um, which is consisted of six points, universal manhood suffrage, secret ballot. Um, funnily enough, for voting at this time is something that's done um, not in private. Um, it's it's done in quite an intimidating way. You've got to make your way up onto the hustings. The closest parallel, I guess, to these days would be something like a music festival, drunken revelry and 
people deliberately bribing um, people and hiring thugs to make sure people vote the right kind of way. So unsurprisingly, this movement for democracy wants the secret ballot to be able to vote in in the polling booth, uh, as we do to to this day. Um, It wants the abolition of property qualification for MPs. In other words, only people who are rich can stand for parliament at the time. Um, It wants the the qualification that, that limits MPs to to the propertied and rich classes abolishing. Uh, it wants payment for MPs. It wants equal sized constituencies. There's huge variety in the size of constituencies at this time. Of course, until 1832, places like Sheffield did not elect their own MPs. Um, so there's still a lot of disparity, even after the so-called Great Reform Act 32. And the only point of the People's Charter not to be conceded to this day, those of you who are keeping tally will note uh, the sixth one, annual parliaments, or in other words, general elections every year. It doesn't take sort of much thought to think about why that's not being conceded. That's the last thing um, any sort of professional politician wants. Um, but the thinking there, for the Chartists at least, is that, um, you know, in a sense, all of these other points are designed to make politics more representative of ordinary people. But the second thing often forgotten about the Chartists is they also want to make political leaders more accountable hence general elections every year. Well, that brings me to Samuel Holbury, probably the most famous Sheffield chartist. And I'm going to start um, after, I mean, the history of this bust in itself is quite interesting. This was commissioned by, well, I'm not going to give the story away for those of you who who don't know the story of Holbury, because it's, yeah, it's quite a gripping one, but I'll, I'll hold the thought about the history of this bust for the moment. But if I forget to come back to it, feel free to ask questions about about it afterwards. I'm going to begin with um, plaque dedicated to the young Samuel Holbury. Um, this is um, the burial site of Holbury in the Sheffield General Cemetery. And I'm going to zoom in so you can see what's actually on his tombstone. Uh, it says, sacred to the memory of Samuel Holbury, who at the early age of 27, died in York Castle after suffering an imprisonment of two years and three months, June the 21st, 1842, for advocating what to him appeared to be true interest of the people of England. And I think the the, the second part then, which you can't, probably can't, can't read, is quite interesting as well. It says, vanished is the feverish dream of life. The rich and poor find no distinction here. The great and lowly end their care and strife. The well-beloved may have affections, tear, but at the last the oppressor and the slave shall equal stand before the bar of God, of him who life and hope and freedom gave to all that through this veil of tears have trod. Let none then murmur against the wise decree, opened the door and set the captive free. Also of Samuel John, his son, who died in his infancy, this tablet was erected by his bereft widow. So Holbury dies at the tragic age of 27 in York Castle, where he's been imprisoned for the part he's played in a Chartist uprising in Sheffield. And I'll t- tell you about why he dies there later on. Let me just say a little bit more about Holbury himself. He was originally a farm labourer from Nottinghamshire. Um, he'd enlisted in the army at the age of 17 relocated to Northampton, where he became deeply influenced by local radicals, imbibing their democratic ideas and ideals. On buying his freedom from the army in April 1835, he moved to Sheffield, where he first worked as a cooper, barrel maker, then as a distiller. 
After he lost his job in 1837, as many working people did at this time due to an economic downturn, he then lived for a brief period of time in London. Um, but having failed to, to turn his luck around there, he returns to Sheffield in October 1838. A little over a year later, Holbury was once again unemployed, but by this time he had a young pregnant wife. Given Holbury's radical education in Northampton, coupled with the periods of unemployment he experienced, it's not surprising that he joined the Sheffield Working Men's Association once he returned to Sheffield. This was the organisation that spearheaded the emerging Chartist movement in the town. Like the Working Men's Associations elsewhere, established in Britain in the 1830s, the Sheffield one had been set up in 1837 to campaign for the extension of democratic and social rights. It was not long until Holbury emerged as a leading Chartist speaker in the town. He played a leading part, in fact, in the church sit-in organised by Sheffield Chartists in 1839. Now, we might ask ourselves, why are Chartists organising demonstrations in churches and not just in Sheffield, we might add? Um, a bit of context here. The growing tension between Sheffield Chartists and the local authorities in the late 1830s was really about the various ways in which the elite tried to exclude the Chartists from public spaces, the point I mentioned at the very beginning of my lecture. It was becoming increasingly difficult for them to even hold large outdoor meetings in places like Paradise Square. There was no access to public buildings to hold meetings which were available to middle-class reformers. So this explains why Chartists began to held silent protest meetings in Paradise Square and also why they took the decision to process to the parish church and stage a protest inside them by occupying the pews, the seats, the benches of the local well-to-do. This represented a symbolic challenge to the power of the established order, propped up as it was, of course, by the Anglican Church, the Church of England. Chartists would meet up and march en masse to the church. This happened over a series of Sundays, the summer and autumn of 1839. They'd enter the church. They'd sit in the private pews, i.e. the seats that had been paid for by, supposedly paid for by the local middle classes who got their name on the back of them, um, much like sort of um, opera and Hollywood stars do on, you know, pavements and backs of seats in theatres, those sorts of things. Um, so these were rented by the wealthy and symbolised, of course, the hierarchy of the state church, which was supposed to be the church for all and not just the wealthy. The occupation of the pews, therefore, by the Chartists prevented many of the middle class from gaining admission to the church uh, and was a manifestation of the growing conflict between rich and poor uh, at this time. And not surprisingly, um, it led to a number of commotions as instances of pew renters tried to evict Chartists, leading to fisticuffs. To further underline their point, um, Chartists often attended wearing their work clothes thus going against the established practice of wearing Sunday best. The point being that a lot of working people had sold their Sunday bests, even if they were rich enough to have a pair of good clothes for Sunday, they pawned them to be able to make ends meet. Finally, and perhaps most significantly of all, Chartists requested sermons that emphasised the liberality and fraternal basis of Christianity. In the hands of many Chartists, Chartism was merely applied Christianity. The Bible is my Chartist manual, claimed the lead Chartist, T.B. Smith. So Holbury 
was very much at the forefront of organising these sit-ins. Now, had that been the extent of Holbury's contribution to Char, he would have remained a relatively minor figure, a local and regional figure to be sure, um, but that was about it. But it was in the events of the night of 11th, 12th January 1839, which would transform Holbury into a Chartist hero and a national name. And I'll come to the weapon that you can see on the screen here in a minute. For that was the night that Holbury and other local Chartists were alleged to have planned an uprising in Sheffield, which was to be part of a series of linked risings across the region. Holbury, the reputed ringleader, was supposed to have made a careful military plan. At his trial for seditious conspiracy, the court heard how he and his supporters amassed a sizable arsenal, which included daggers, pikes, and the item you can see here, a caltrop. It's a metal sort of spike which you throw on the floor um, with a view to disabling cavalry, which, of course, is one of the ways that the armed forces break up uh, popular disturbances. But there was also shells, bullets and hand grenades all found in, in Holbury's home and other places. So the rising was to begin with a diversion on the outskirts of the town by firing at the homes of the magistrates, the purpose being to draw the forces of law and order away from the town centre. Once the military were so drawn, the Chartists would then seize the old town hall and Paradise Square, which at that time was the administrative commercial centre of Sheffield. Unfortunately, it turned out that one of the co-conspirators, a Rotherham landlord by the name of James Allen, whose pub had been the meeting place of the conspirators where they'd hatched this plan, turns out he was a spy and was being used by the police uh, to provoke the Chartists into rising. Um, as a way then, of course, of being prepared for it, being able to round up the ringleaders and make an example of them. Um, that, that sort of agent provocateur role is is a common one amongst spies and informers at this time. So this enabled the police and soldiers to foil the plan just as it was about to unfold. And Holbury was arrested at his home where the police found a dagger and grenades. What followed was really a skirmish rather than an uprising. When Holbury failed to appear and give the order to begin, those who had amassed estimates suggest that there were about 50 insurgents. The rest had gone, um, suspecting that their plans had been foiled. And after some brief fighting with the police, they disappeared, um, some of whom were pursued and arrested. Now, most historians have accepted that a rising was planned by some Sheffield Chartists, though the most recent account by Catherine Lewis suggests that Holbury had not in fact planned an uprising and that the police magistrates and prosecution at Holbury's trial abused the grossly one-sided legal system to secure the conviction of an innocent Holbury. Now, whether one agrees with her conclusions, I think the article is very interesting for its detailed account of the way in which the criminal justice system was loaded against the Chartists and ordinary people at this time. In March 1840, Holbury and his associates were tried at York for seditious conspiracy and found guilty. Holbury was sentenced to four years imprisonment at North Allerton, a choice that was dictated by considerations of geography, get him away from Sheffield, away from the epicentre of Chartism, and also harshness of conditions. Holbury was so badly treated in prison, he was made to work the treadmill, which you can see here, and to endure the silent system. Um, so much so that his health deteriorated with the result that he died just over two years later. and He was only 27 years old. The authorities concluded that Holbury had died of TB. The Chartists took a different view. To add to the tragedy, Holbury's son, who his wife had been pregnant with when he was arrested, had died at the even tender age of 18 weeks old, hence the appendage to um, the tombstone that we saw. But something like twenty to 50,000 people lined the streets of Sheffield 
um, for Holbury's funeral. And soon he was being hailed as a martyr to the People's Charter. And of course, the Cascades, which some of you may have seen, East Gardens in Sheffield, were dedicated to his memory, a somewhat belated tribute to the sacrifices that he and others made for the liberties that we so often take for granted. So I think um, that is certainly not the end of Chartism in Sheffield, by no means. Um, thereafter, however, for reasons that are probably not difficult to fathom, the majority of them agreed to pursue their objectives more peacefully rather than organising uprisings. And there's no doubt that that Holbury's, the, the physical force kind of side of it, is undoubtedly one of the more dramatic episodes in the history of Chartism. But nonetheless, I think it's testament to the sacrifice that, that those like Holbury made to try and bring about a better society and secure rights that, that too many of us, I think, take for granted these days. So to conclude, I think if we're to fully make sense of, of movements like Chartism and radicalism, we need to focus on the sights, spaces, sounds and feelings associated with the everyday lives of radical activists and their working class supporters. Radicalism was nurtured in the Cutler's workshop, not just in the sense of the growing proletarianization of the workforce, but also in the sense that the workshop was a space in which radical-minded Cutlers could discuss and debate the ills of the working class in a way that was just not open to factory workers elsewhere. And the Cutlers and other artisans felt increasingly alienated, not just in the workshop, but also in public life, as the authorities tried to limit their access to the public sphere, forcing groups like the Chartists to meet outside uh, and beyond the inner town. Protests like Holbury, Holbury's were as much about pushing back on these restrictions as they were about the People's Charter and overthrowing constituted authority. More prosaically, though no less significant, men and women like Holbury were angry and disillusioned, always with the authorities and elites, but also sometimes with their fellow workers who did not always respond positively to movements like Chartism, whether through fear of reprisals or even opposition to the goals, strategies and tactics of the movement. The fate of Holbury and the demise of Chartism in the short term reminds us that being a political activist can be a depressing experience as well as a dangerous one which necessitates great sacrifice and sometimes the ultimate sacrifice. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Archaeology Now. For more information about our podcast and guest speaker, please visit our page on the Archaeology Podcast Network. You can get in touch with us at Archaeology in the City on Facebook, WordPress, Instagram, or Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. See you next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.